Well, hello and welcome. My name is Guy Stevens. I am the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, welcome and thank you for joining us today for another AASR Live. Uh, we've got a great uh, program today and I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, of course, I am the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint, which is an organization I started a little over three years ago. Uh, started the Alliance really to raise awareness about the issue of restraint and seclusion uh, at the time happening in schools across the nation. Uh, since I began that work, realized that this is happening not only across uh, the nation here in the United States, but really across the world, uh, which is a great um, segue into our, our speaker today, which I'll get to in just a moment. Uh, but this is truly kind of an international issue. Uh, where very often uh, kids are being restrained, secluded, suspended, expelled, uh, subject subjected to corporal punishment. Uh, a lot of things are being done to kids, very often in the name of behavior, uh, when in fact there are far better things we can and should be doing. Uh, the vision of the Alliance is really about safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. Uh, with all that said, um, you know, any of you that have been following us for a while, uh, you know that we don't want to see things like restraint and seclusion happening anywhere that they might be happening. Uh, we want to see better ways of supporting and working with all people. Uh, so a lot of work to be done. Uh, really excited to have with us today a guest from around the world. Uh, uh, you know, I often talk about how international our audience is. Uh, we've got people from all over the world, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, uh, Canada, the United States, uh, India, you know, people that join us from all over. Uh, really excited today to have Linda Knight Bois, uh, the principal of the Glenview School in Wellington, New Zealand, joining us to talk about the neurosequential model for education. And if you've been following any of our programming for a while, you may have seen a previous uh, presentation that we did on the neurosequential model for education. Uh, again, another great way of working with and supporting uh, kids. I uh, do want to let you know that during the presentation today, I've talked to Linda and she is happy to take questions during the presentation. So at any point, if you have a question uh, or even a comment, feel free to put that in the chat. We'd love to uh, see what you have to say and uh, we'll try to ask those questions as we go. Uh, of course, if we begin running tight on time, we might you know, close the questions for a little while, but I think that we're, we're going to do just great. Uh, as always, this session is being recorded. So this is being recorded. It will be available on Facebook, YouTube, and as an audio podcast. Uh, so you have the option to go back and, and look at it again later or share it with somebody else, which we always encourage. We want to see you uh, sharing these events with, uh, you know, other coworkers or parents or whoever you might be uh, sharing it with others that might benefit. I uh, would like to ask you that are already on with us live. I see we have a number of people already on live, which is great to see. Uh, if you're on, let me know who you are and where you're from. It's always a lot of fun to see who's joining us and where they're joining us from. Uh, a lot of familiar names that we see uh, frequently that are joining us for these presentations. And that makes me uh, really happy to, to see uh, people coming back and, and joining us for more of these presentations. I think it's a really great opportunity. So with that, you don't really want to hear me talk anymore. So let me go ahead and introduce to you our very special guest for today. Uh, I'm going to introduce to you uh, Linda Knight Bois. Uh, who I mentioned was a principal at the Glenview School in Wellington and a co-lead of the, and I'm going to do the best I can here, Linda, uh, Padura uh, East Cahe Echo um, Network of Schools. Uh, and you can correct me in a minute because <laughs> I'm sure I didn't do perfect. Uh, she also has a master's of education uh, specializing in special needs uh, and Pacific learners and was trained uh, and has trained with Dr. Bruce Perry. 
uh, in the neurosequential network, completing the neurosequential model uh, and education's training certificate in 2021. Uh, and I know that that is a pretty intensive program. Uh, I know that the uh, requirements for that are, are pretty in-depth. Uh, it's a really fantastic program. Uh, of course, uh, she is beginning the uh, neurosequential model for education advanced trainer program this year. Uh, which um, I'm sure will be a, a really a big commitment as well, uh, but one that sounds like it's been paying dividends for you. Uh, Linda is also passionate about sharing what she's learned about neuroscience, learning, behavior, well-being, and has led neuroscience workshops in Peoria and Wellington. Uh, I want to thank Linda for joining us, um, and I will point out to all of our users and, and uh, all of our <laughs> viewers today, uh, it is 7.30 in the morning there on Friday, so you are a, a day ahead of us. Uh, really appreciate you being so accommodating because I know that as we work across time zones, uh, it can be uh, a big challenge. But Linda, you and I had an opportunity to connect oh, probably several months ago uh, and talk about the work that you were doing, uh, which really sounds fantastic. So I'm really excited to have you here today. Uh, have you sharing your work um, with the neurosequential model for education as well? Uh, you know, as we look at you know, a lot of the punitive things that happen in schools, you know, restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, you know, kids kind of getting down the prison pipeline. Uh, you know, there are a lot of better things we can and should be doing. I think the neurosequential model uh, is just one of those things that can really make a lot of improvements. So, uh, Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's a pleasure to have you here. Really excited to, um, you know, be uh, sharing what you have to share and all of your experience. Good morning, Guy. I'm Morena Koto uh, from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, it's my privilege. Yeah, no, it's, it's very exciting. If it's okay, I'm just going to share the story of our school. I think that encapsulates a lot of... Um, Absolutely. Of well, I, I tell you what, work. I will go ahead and uh, bring up your slide deck so you'll have it in front of you here. And let me yeah. add that to the stream. And I will let, you know, a couple of people have weighed in so far. Uh, we've got uh, Mickey Marinelli, who is a uh, neuroscientist actually in, in Austin, Texas, joining us. Uh, we've got uh, Lynn uh, from Virginia, retired uh, manager of Children's Services. So a few people are beginning to join us here, uh, but I will let you take it away. And you and I agreed that uh, I would stay here while you present. And if, if I have a question or somebody else has a question, that you were happy to take questions during the presentation. So uh, I'm going to make myself quiet so you can take over, uh, but I will. Oh, and our friend Gail from Australia. So uh, uh, a little closer to, to you there uh, is on as well. And uh, I will be quiet now, but I may pop back up as we get questions that are coming in the chat. So uh, thank you so much. We're really looking forward to this today. Thanks, Guy. Just before we start, I, all I can see is my screen. Is that right? Can't see. That's right. And, and, and everybody yeah, else now can see you and I. And of course, I'm going to be quiet, uh, but they can see your slide there, the Glenview School and our story. So if you want to take it away as you advance through your slides, they're going to see them. If there's any problems, I'll jump in. Uh, we also had Allison just join us from the UK. So we've got a, a really good uh, international group already uh, tuning in here. So I will let you take it away. Great. Well, thank you. So um, you'll see on my first slide, there's a picture there of uh, Dr. Bruce Perry, so a friend and mentor who often tells us that if we want to see systemic change, one of the most powerful levers is through storytelling. And that image that you can see there is from a great um, podcast called Seen Out Loud, which is a podcast that shares the stories um, of children and young people that have lived or are living in state care. <clears throat> And there's a couple of episodes on there where Bruce has um, interviewed 
on exactly this, on the fact that if we want to see system change, um, a great way to do that is through stories. So the education system here in New Zealand needs great change. Um, Guy, of course, your life's work is all about systemic change um, in your country and around the world. So um, I thought it'd just be, if it's okay with everyone, I'd just sort of talk you through the story of Glenview School over the last few years. So our school um, is based in a place called Cannons Creek in Porirua in Wellington, New Zealand. So it's a very multicultural community. Um, it's a fairly low socio socioeconomic area of the country, but what it lacks in financial resources, it more than makes up in cultural richness and diversity. So we have children from um, uh, many Māori children. We have children whose families come from about eight different Pacific islands. We have a group of Syrian uh, former refugee children and um, Burmese children from former refugee backgrounds. And I think we have about two uh, what we call Pākehā children, so white or Caucasian of, of um, European descent. Uh, just quite a small school, about 110 children. Um, we're very lucky in that our staff reflect, certainly in terms of ethnicity, reflect our children. So if we go back about four or five years ago, um, the system that is our school, our organisation was in distress. We had um, dysregulated children and we had dysregulated adults. So it was a time when we were um, getting quite a few new children coming into the school, not just at age five, but um, older children. And for a range of reasons, um, a number of them were in distress and we were not coping. We did not know how to respond. We tried. Uh, we didn't feel the advice that we were getting from um, those that should know, from external professionals and um, people who work in government to support schools. Um, we didn't feel that that advice was working. So we just knew we had to look for something else. The cavalry wasn't coming. We had to find something ourselves. And it was at a time when we were going to a few um, workshops and professional development sessions um, with people like uh, Catherine Burkett, who's a, a local presenter, um, psychologist, um, speaks about neuroscience, and also Nathan McCarty Wallace, who's from the South Island of New Zealand and similarly um, presents to a lot of different audiences, um, both educators and parents and other organisations. Um, and both of these people were mentioning, of course, the boy who was raised as a dog and Dr. Perry. So... Once we heard this book mentioned a few times, we thought we need to read it. So I read it, uh, passed it on to my associate principal and she read it and it was the proverbial light bulb for us really. Um, yeah, and from that we went on and we did a, a book study with the book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, with our staff. So there's um, <clears throat> six of us at the time. We have seven teachers now. Six of us did the neurosequential model um, introductory series, which is just five one-hour modules, um, and we would we would expand it. We would sort of um, work through the modules, but stop them every so often and make connections to our own children and watch a few other bits and pieces. Um, but that was a great introduction for our staff 
um, in this work. I went on and did the NME trainer certificate, and now I'm about halfway through the advanced trainer certificate. And then what we did is we went on to develop what we call te ayotanga. So um, we were really enjoying the learning that we were undertaking. Um, again, lots of light bulbs coming on, um, lots of sense making. Um, but I guess the one thing that was missing for us was the local reference and the local context. So um, we started to develop, and I have to um, really thank and acknowledge my deputy principal, Lester Mohi, for um, supporting me in this. Um, Lester's fluent in uh, te reo Māori, the Māori language, well steeped in the culture. And we developed our own framework on the neurosequential uh, work. So it is couched within something called te whare tapawha, which means the four-sided house or whare. Whare is house in Māori. And this is a, um, a holistic Māori, uh, kaupapa Māori um, model on health and well-being that was developed in the 1980s by um, a Māori academic called uh, Sir Mason Jury, Professor Sir Mason Jury. And it's very similar, actually. Once I started to learn a little bit about, not that I know much at all, about the North American Indigenous Medicine Wheel, very similar with that, um, the holistic, um, multifaceted approach to uh, to well-being, to health. Um, so we have the four sides of the whare, uh, physical well-being, spiritual well-being, mental and emotional well-being, and family and relational social well-being. And within that, we unpacked, we explored what are the protective factors, what are the healing factors of te ao Māori. So te ao Māori is the, the Māori world or the Māori worldview. And we looked at um, different aspects of, of culture, of everyday life, of um, aspects of culture that were reflected in our school school day and our school curriculum and just made those links to the neurosequential model. And I won't go into great depth now. I mean, the, the document, which is actually still a draft, it's um, a working document. Um, it's available if anyone's interested. Um, but there are just a few in the middle there, if you can see, there are a few concepts. One is takahi. So anyone who's familiar with international rugby will know um, our All Blacks and will know that a, a game starts with a, a haka. And a key part of the haka is the takahi, which is the stomping of the foot, um, the rhythm, and that connection between um, the mori or the life force and the body and the, the land, the um, papatuanuku, the whenua. Um, and of course, anyone who knows um, a little bit about neurosequential model or about um, regulation knows how important rhythm is. Um, so that's just one aspect of the concept. But as I say, it's available if anyone's interested in, in finding out more. Just jump in any time, Guy, if you have any questions or comments. Will do. And, and I just want to mention to the audience as well, uh, feel free anytime to jump in if you have any have any questions or comments. Um, but I, I'm going to I'm going to say that 
uh, I'm, I'm sure that document is something that people are probably going to want. So uh, if that's something that you can share, uh, we can make that available uh, through the Alliance, if that's OK as well. Um, but kind of kind of a question, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, going back a few years and kind of where things were. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that being a little bit of the starting point of this this journey of realizing that, you know, there were. But can you, can you tell us a little bit about what that looked like? I mean, you know, what did it look like in terms of the school? What were you seeing? Um, how, how did you, you know, how did you come to realize that, you know, we've got to do something different? Can you can you speak a little more about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a bit embarrassed to recall some of those days. I mean, we were, as I say, a system in stress. So as a leader, I was, I was under pressure. I was stressed. Teachers were um, at times very stressed, and of course, children were. So um, it, it was a time. So children would, a child would, um, would become escalated in the classroom, become dysregulated, and we were doing things like um, transporting children. So I would be either called over to a classroom to help with an incident, or um, or I would. Um, or a child would be transported to me and um, popped into my office. And we didn't have seclusion as such. Um, but, you know, I guess it's a quasi-seclusion if a child is in my office and I sit in my chair and place my chair in front of the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and there was restraint. So in our minds it was, you know, we we have the mandate to do this because we're keeping this child safe. Right. We're also keeping other other children safe. Um, we might have been concerned that a child was going to smash a window or run out of the school grounds, um, in, in which case we might have um, done our best to restrain them um, and staff would get injured in the process. Right, right. Um, and, of course, we didn't really understand what we were doing. At that yeah. point, you know, and, and I appreciate it because, you know, I know you mentioned kind of, you know, almost a little embarrassed looking back. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's a really important part of the the journey, um, you know, because I'm sure that, uh, you know, at that point in time, um, you know, there was a realization at some point that, hey, this isn't working. We've got to do something different. But mm-hmm. one of the things that we commonly see is um, people get stuck there and they get stuck. Uh, maybe maybe they have an inkling that this doesn't feel right or maybe we could do something different, but it's easy to get stuck. And when you get stuck, you can begin to kind of justify, well, this is why we're doing what we're doing. We have to do it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the space that we see a lot of restraint, seclusion, a lot of very punitive consequences. So, you know, I think it's a really important part of the story. And I think, you know, I think about all the um, amazing people that I've met in this work and, and people that are doing work to, to bring about change. Uh, and, and so many of them have a story like yours where there was this moment where, um, you kind of realize that this, this isn't working. This isn't, this isn't working for us. It's not working for the kids. It's not working for anybody. Uh, and you know, that's the place that I think um, we need to get people moving. And that's why I'm so interested in, in your story. But I'm not going to interrupt anymore, but I'm going to come back later and, and ask a question kind of along the lines of, OK, well, you know, you, you realize that need for change and you made these changes and what the results have been. But I'm sure you're going to tell us a bit about that as well. Yeah. And, 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 I think- and, 
and just I would just add here because this this speaks to my heart. Uh, Lynn just had a comment here that says, "Do the best until you know better. When mm-hmm. you know better, do better." Uh, I say that very frequently. I say, you know, that when we can do better, we have an obligation to do better. Um, but that's it, it's a hard that's a hard point to be at because mm-hmm. you know, like you said, you're exhausted, you're frustrated, you you know, you're doing things that uh, perhaps are coming in through uh, various channels of guidance. Um, and it's, it's a tough place to be. So thanks for sharing that. Cause I know it's a, a tough thing to kind of go through. Yeah, no, that's, that's fine. I think too, at the time we were, um, we were looking for, for places to, um, put the blame. I was very angry. I was raging against the machine because I felt that we just weren't getting the support that we needed for these children. We weren't getting financial support, um, to pay for our, um, our teacher aids, our, we call them kaiarahi, um, and yeah, and I was very angry at the the people that I believe should be supporting us, um, and that just you know. Compounded yeah, well, I, I, I love the, the the analogy there, and and I've heard it a couple of times recently. Uh, kind of like the cavalry is not coming. Uh, yeah. you know, I was at a conference recently. It was kind of like nobody's necessarily coming to save you, um, but mm. at the same time, you know, I believe. I mean. <laughs> I believe there's a lot of things we could do to improve education, wherever it may be, whether it's in the United States or New Zealand. I think I would love to see uh, more resources wherever possible going into education, supporting teachers, supporting educators. But but I also believe that one or a handful of people can make significant changes and a significant positive difference just by changing the things that they're doing. Um, so, you know, uh, I think that that point that nobody's going to save you uh, that no cavalry is going to come, um, while somewhat depressing and demoralizing, mm-hmm. um, is important because it gives you the, mm-hmm. that kind of moment of, I've got to do something, mm-hmm. you know, uh, let me, let me just get mm-hmm. to one more comment and then I'll, I'll let you continue on. Uh, yeah. Gail said, uh, congratulations to you, Linda, uh, that you realized that, uh, that it wasn't right for anyone, especially kids, which can lead to something different. Uh, many don't realize, uh, I have another comment here from Beth from California, uh, autistic mom of two young adults with autism, uh, teacher now, private tutor for homeschooling students, many with disabilities, uh, also an advocate with Lives in the Balance, uh, another great uh, organization doing great work based on Dr. Ross Green's work. Uh, so let me let me be quiet now and, and let you continue on, but I'll encourage people as you have questions, feel free to put those in the chat. No, that's good. So um, yeah, so the, this is just a summary of what the key learning was for us. So um, predominantly about the nervous system, and I say the nervous system, and we know there are several, but I'm just going to simplify it um, and talk about the nervous system. So understanding the nervous system being in distress, I think, was a key point. Um, and I'll just work through these um, these subtitles here slide by slide. So what did we actually do? So we increased our knowledge of basic neuroscience. So it is very basic neuroscience um, because we know the the brain is such a complex thing and even those that have dedicated their life to studying it still only understand a fraction of it. But So we had some basic knowledge about the brain and the nervous system and how the state of our nervous system impacts our functioning. Um, and understandings of factors which impact brain development and stress. So um, we learned a bit more about the different parts of the brain. Um, And you'll see on the bottom left there, if you know a little bit about Bruce Perry or the neurosequential model, you'll be familiar with this upside-down triangle. 
um, and the way that the brain develops from bottom to top, from um, the brainstem, diencephalon, um, limbic system and the cortex, and how different parts of the brain are responsible for different functions. Um, and then if we tip that upside down triangle on its side, um, we have the uh, arousal continuum or the state dependent functioning continuum, which is something that um, Dr. Perry often comes back to in his teachings. And understanding this really is, is crucial to this work. So um, many children, uh, perhaps children that have been fortunate to um, have, you know, have had a mother who when the mother, their mother was pregnant with them, had a straightforward pregnancy with no stress and no um, interurine um, insults in terms of alcohol or drugs. Um, and then that primary caregiver was well supported. There was limited stress or trauma in that child's upbringing. Um, and so for many, many of these children, um, they have a baseline of calm. And we know that of this, um, that learning requires a little bit of stress, that novelty means there's going to be a little bit of stress. So um, moderate stresses are thrown into that child's environment and they might move into the alert state, but then they're capable of resetting themselves back to the calm state. However, children that have not had such a fortunate um, uh, early early years from conception to where they are at the moment. They might have had um, stresses in their un unpredictable ongoing stress in their life. They might have had trauma, um, abuse, neglect. Um, they develop an oversensitized stress response system so that they easy flick, easily flick along the right um, from calm to alert, alarm, maybe fear or terror. And they have difficulty resetting back to that the calm um, setting. So we know that of our lower parts of our brain, um, our brainstem, um, and even our diencephalon limbic system, if they are not um, processing well, they're not calm, then we can't access our cortex. And of course, we need our cortex for learning, decision making, um, reflection, making choices, understanding time. So um, yeah, so in an, I won't talk too much more about that, but in a nutshell, um, our teachers understanding uh, these processes and these core um, neural networks and how they function in the brain was um, was crucial to actually this learning and to our ongoing work. Uh, if I can just ask a quick question, Linda, mm. how did how did um, you know as you began, and and you can maybe tell us a little bit more about kind of what the implementation of your training looked like. But as you began to uh, have teachers involved in the training and involved in kind of learning, you know, you, you hear a term like neuroscience and you think, oh, wow, uh, that sounds like it's really complicated. Um, I, I've long said that uh, I'm a believer that a little bit of neuroscience goes a really long way. And that mm. if you understand a little bit of brain science, you really beget a, a different kind of window into why a child might be having a difficult time, why the behavior might be, you know, what, what we might be seeing in terms of distress mm. behavior and, and all of that. But how did educators initially respond to this? I mean, uh, was there skepticism? Were they embracing it? Um, what was your experience as people began to get some of this information? I think I think in the early days there was skepticism. Um, 
I think probably more powerful than the sort of instructional aspects to the program was the book study I think and that comes back to the power of storytelling I think so um, those of you that know the boy who was raised as a dog every chapter uh, focuses on a different child or a group of children and their story um, so we would take a chapter at a staff meeting and um, people would have read it before the staff meeting and then we'd unpack it and make those really important connections to children we, we knew so I think that sense making, the storytelling, the connections to children we knew was really the powerful part. Yeah, the, those stories really give an opportunity for people to kind of imagine, you know, you, you read through one of those stories and you can think, well, that reminds me of this child or is similar to this situation. Yeah. And that, that connection, I'm sure would be really valuable. But but I know it's always a challenge. I mean, I, mean, I know, you know, I don't know uh, how things work uh, in New Zealand, but I know here in the United States, uh, you know, I, I feel for educators as there's always a flood of, of new training and new priorities coming at them. Um, but this is, in my opinion, one of those um, one of those things that's so valuable that that really basic neuroscience is so valuable uh, that it can really be transformative uh, to to I think an educator. But I, I certainly feel for the fact that there's so much that's coming at them in terms of priority. It's probably mm -hmm. easy to be, oh, okay, what's the flavor of the week? What are, what are we going to do this time? So I was just kind of curious how people responded uh, as you began to dig into some of this. Yeah. And I think, um, and I'll talk about this in this slide as well, that, you know, if you are adding on new learning, then to a certain extent, you have to think about, well, what can we take away? And I think, um, you know, when we come to the emotional contagion, so um, that's that whole concept about an escalated teacher cannot de-escalate or regulate an escalated child. Um, so it's about are there aspects of our work, um, paperwork, um, expectations that we can um, sort of decrease uh, to, to look after our staff so they feel less pressured and less stressed and less likely to be dysregulated themselves. Um, because we know that wonderful quote, when the adults change, everything changes, um, by Paul Dix. I think it's the title of his of a book that he's written. Um, and we certainly saw that, that um, if we, you know, looking after staff made a, was a huge investment in... Um, and looking after children. So, um, and I've just got some notes here where I just made some some notes about some of the things that we did. Um, so we, oh, one in the bottom right there, you see a wee little, it's actually a wee little card that we made. So this idea actually came from Matthew Portell um, from his great podcast on the Trauma-Informed Educators Network. Um, it's the tag in, tag out system. So we just had made up little laminated cards that teachers could have on a lanyard or put on their classroom wall. Um, and it was really just permission to take time out if they felt themselves getting a bit stressed, but dysregulated. They could send a card to me and I could pop into the classroom or they could show it to the teacher next door or perhaps um, to the teacher aide. And they could just pop out the classroom and go and grab a drink. And we're very lucky our location at school, we're um, amongst nature. So they could go and have a drink and look at the hills and breathe and then pop back into the class. But that's great. You know, it's funny when you when before you even mentioned Matthew, uh, he, he kind of popped in my head as you were talking about the approach that you were taking and and being mindful 
of the staff, because I think that's something that sometimes gets forgotten is that when you're doing things mm -hmm. like this, you know, you're, you're really, you know, um, you know, I, I kind of have said repeatedly, you know, you can't, you can't be trauma informed for just the kids. You've got to, you've got to be aware mm -hmm. of what staff are going through. You've got to be aware of the trauma that they're going through, the difficulty they're going through. And, and that's one of the things I've always loved about uh, Matthew's work. In fact, uh, last month I uh, was lucky enough to go to the trauma informed educators mm -hmm. network conference uh, in Nashville uh, and see Matthew and, and so many other great educators. Um, but you know, that, that idea that you're not just doing something for the kids, it's about, changing the culture and the way you support everybody within the system is so critical. Mm. And I think Matthew would say, and Dr. Perry as well, that actually, you know, focusing on the adults is the most important thing. Um, it, you know, when the adults change, everything changes. So that's in many ways got to be our starting place. Um, <clears throat> and going back to our tag out system, it's there, but actually teachers don't use it. And I think it's just that sense that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, they know that they're supported, they know that they're not in this alone. Um, and I guess it's their own felt sense of safety. Um, they don't, my, my assumption is they don't feel that sense of threat that, um, you know, I, I, they're not feeling responsible for the children's behaviour as an individual um, responsibility, um, but they feel supported. So, um, yeah, so that's one of the things we did. Um, we also ensured that we have, have enough adults in the school. Um, so we have prioritised spending on teacher aids, kaiarahi, um, and other things have probably um, had to be cut a bit, but um, there's an, an important um, proverb in, in te ao Māori, which is he, he aha te mea nui o te ao, he, he tangata, he tangata, he tangata. What is the most important thing in the world? It's people. So um, just to make sure that there's enough people around to um, to support the children and support each other. Um, and we made sure that we support the mental and physical health of the staff. So offering um, counselling, access to counselling, um, sick days, mental health days, and just having a general um, strong culture of, and ethic of care. I have to say that I can't take responsibility for this solely because when I came into the school there was a great culture amongst the staff um, influenced by a strong Polynesian uh, culture of, of care um, but just making sure that we continue that and continue the open communication channels and um, you know not too much pressure um, on paperwork and workload um, because we know it makes such a big difference. So then it, it was about uh, what sorts of things can we put in place to minimise and prevent uh, people feeling stressed, adults and children. Um, so first of all, of course, it's those understandings about well-being and adults being regulated, but also recognising what are the aspects of the school day, of the curriculum um, that are regulating and relational um, and to prioritise and increase these. So, you know, we had learned that um, rhythmic activities are important. Um, so just making sure that, that teachers know this and they might stop a lesson, they might break up the school day with regular singing, dance. Kapahaka is the Māori term for um, song and dance. 
Um, we also made sure that we had quite a focus on play. We increased the amount of um, time where children were playing at school and also adults playing alongside them. Um, we're very lucky, as I said, with our access to nature. So uh, especially our younger children spend a lot of time playing in nature. Yeah, that, that's really fantastic. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, unfortunately, that's one of the things that we see less and less of, uh, you know, here is, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I believe that nature is very regulating, that mm -hmm. uh, getting kids outside can really make a, a positive, well, getting anybody outside can really make a positive difference. Um, you mm -hmm. know, but often um, one of the things that we see here, and I'm kind of curious if this was an issue for you, um, are these punitive approaches, these punitive approaches being somewhat counterproductive, meaning that uh, a child who's having a difficult time, well, what do they lose? They lose their outdoor time. They lose their recess. Mm -hmm. They lose their 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 free time. And, and taking that away from somebody that really needs uh, needs that time to help them regulate is... Uh, incredibly counterproductive. Um, I mean, did you have issues like that previously, um, you know, where the, there was kind of a punitive mindset and people would lose those things? Or was this just something that you began to increase more of as you were moving in this direction? Yeah, I suppose we did have a bit more, um, we did have a bit of that. So children would, yeah, have to, would lose time at break, although we made sure it wasn't the whole break so that they did get outside and they got fresh air and movement. Um, but, yeah, there was definitely more of that back in the day. Um, and, of course, now we understand it. Um, there, there isn't, really. Um, and I, I should say, too, that about the same time, about 2018, I went overseas. I was lucky enough um, to go to Europe, and I went to Finland and Estonia, apart from other places. And a key learning there was, as many people know, that first of all, until about the age of seven, um, the curriculum there is is predominantly play-based. Um, and those countries also lots of time outside, lots of nature and lots of um, cultural aspects and music. Um, but the instructional day, even after seven, there is a lot less time where children are sitting down in front of a teacher um, inside and so when I came back from overseas one of the changes we made was to extend our lunchtime uh, for an extra 30 minutes at that point um, whereby the teachers and, and the kaiarahi would go outside into the playground and play alongside children um, or some of them might just sit on a seat so that children could come and talk to them and so that was that decision was influenced by that trip, but also particularly from the chapter in The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, where Dr. Perry talks about the children of the Waco siege who were rescued and went to live in a children's home. And at that home, there was a range of staff, um, quite a diverse set of staff. But the point he makes there about how there was that relational therapeutic web where children could um, connect with people that they felt a strong connection with um, and sometimes it might be different people um, but within that so there was diversity of adults and there was that strong culture of care and, and a relational web to support the children so that was part of the reason of giving more time for all of our staff or at least most of our staff on any one day to be out there connecting with the children as well. Um, and then there was the response in the moment. So um, if children were becoming distressed, dysregulated, um, our teachers understood more about it um, and about what might have contributed to it. Was it because 
the children um, were having less of a felt sense of safety for some reason. That might have come about because perhaps an adult had raised their voice. There was some sort of conf confrontation, perhaps, as we've said, because the adult was dysregulated or there was something going on, um, like a physical uh, transportation or restraint that, of course, for many children really triggered them and really um, threatened their sense of safety. Um, we also made sure that we had places and relationships for co-regulation. So some classes would have something like a quiet corner, a teepee um, or something like that. But we also had a, a particular sofa in our admin block where children knew, especially at break times, that they could come to and just sit there and restore their sense of calm. They might be offered a, a drink of water. Um, there was an emphasis on limiting the talk, but just um, staff being there for children if they wanted them to um, help them feel safe and regulate. And then teachers might offer opportunities for, for children to self-regulate. That might look like for a junior child um, walking over to the slide at the playground and walking back. Older children sometimes are running around the field. Um, just teachers were recognising uh, that sort of moving into that alert state um, or further along into the alarm state and that children needed um, to do something to help them regulate. Um, other things were um, breathing activities. So we'd, we'd work with children on um, various different strategies for, for breathing and mindfulness um, and just a whole range of things recognising that different things work for different children. And then I just want to say that we did, we do have restorative conversations. So things happen in schools, conflict happens, and we need to fix them up. We need to restore the rupture. But it's about recognising that we have to choose the right time for that. So um, restorative conversations happen, but not when everybody's in their red brain, as we call it with the children. And then um, moving on into our understandings about that general and long-term healing and resistance. So knowing that for a child to heal from a, from, um, a background of stress and trauma, they need at least one trusted adult in their life, ideally that therapeutic web of um, trusted and supported pe people. Um, we need to increase their felt sense of safety, whatever that might look like. And then we did do some psychoeducation with our um, two older classrooms. So, and that's very simple. It's a very simple curriculum. We just sort of organically developed ourselves. Very common sense. Number one being um, increasing their ability to um, confidently articulate the emotions that they're feeling. So young children will often be able to say they feel happy, sad, mad, um, but it's about extending um, their vocabulary when it comes to identifying their emotions. And then number two, that awareness of what it feels like in their body when they're experiencing intense emotions. So helping them notice um, that their heart beat might um, increase, um, that their muscles might feel tight, they might feel hot. So that then once they have more of that awareness, they're more able to self-regulate themselves and calm down. So as I said before, teaching them different strategies they could use for self-regulation. And then finally, just giving opportunities for stretching the resilience muscle. So um, 
We know that for children to become more resilient in the face of stress, they need to be offered predictable, tolerable, small doses of stress um, on a regular basis so that they can learn to reset back to that place of calm. And it's very much like that muscle in the gym. You've got to have the right amount of weight, not too much, to stretch the muscle so that it, um, it develops. And there's that um, diagram on the right from Dr. Perry about um, predictable, moderate and controlled stress can build resilience, whereas unpredictable, severe and prolonged stress um, builds vulnerability um, and causes a negative um, physiological reactivity in the stress response system. And of course, on the left, again, how connectedness is the key. Your history of connectedness is a better predictor of your health than your history of adversity. Um, and the superpower of humankind is our capacity to connect. It's regulating, rewarding, and the major route by which we can teach, coach, parent, heal, and learn. If I can jump in for a second, we, we have yeah. a comment that uh, um, resonated with me as you were going through this. And uh, I'm like you a bit, and, and like Dr. Perry, uh, a big believer in the uh, power of relationships. Um, you know, I kind of always jokingly say that the, the three R's of education should be relationship, relationship, relationship. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and in my view, we should be moving away from many of the things that we move towards, like test scores and, and all of those things that uh, can not only, uh, you know, not be a good measure, but can can kill someone's joy for education. But but mm -hmm. all that aside, um, the idea of relationships and connecting, I think, is really critical. I, you know, I also think it's really important that um, people can connect with people that understand them and, and who they may be. Uh, mm -hmm. And Rose Rosa brought up this really great uh, comment here. Uh, and as I began to kind of think about it, um, really see the value uh, in what's being said here. So Rose said, uh, we also need more neurodivergent staff in school, people mm. who effectively know what the child is experiencing and why, uh, who have that embodied knowledge. And, and we often think about that. We often think about diversity in, in, in various ways and how it's important to have educators or counselors or others that uh, might be... Um, you know, might be better in supporting uh, a diversity of, of, of kids. And I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as I think about this, and, and, and this is just kind of all kind of very off the top of my head, uh, that thought that, um, you know, I think about the, the um, autism community and the autistic self-advocates that are out there. And we've got a lot of autistic self-advocates that are part of our community. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think about the um, amazing work that so many of them do and the tremendous resource. Uh, you know, people mm -hmm. often look at experts uh, as the, the authoritative source on, uh, you know, things like autism, when in mm -hmm. fact, um, you know, an actually autistic individual uh, is really uh, potentially an expert on on what it feels like and, and connection and, and all of that. So anyway, just I thought that was an interesting comment because again, I think we often think about diversity in a lot of ways, but I think when it comes to uh, neurodiversity, uh, when it comes to you know having neurodivergent staff that might have a better understanding of what it feels like uh, to be ADHD or autistic, um, it's really interesting point. 
Yeah, yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, and I meant to say that too, that actually this work for me was really illuminating in terms of um, understanding uh, neurodivergent students, um, you know, children, uh, autistic children and children that might have sensory processing complexities, um, children who some sort of physical discomfort that we might not understand, um, that discomfort sort of sends their nervous system into distress. And I think that, yeah, that was a, a big learning for us as well, that we're still talking about that dysregulated nervous system. Um, so understanding that helps us to um, respond to um, our autistic children. And I think for us too, it's that connection with family as well. So we have a couple of autistic boys and um, they're, they're younger. And I think having that connection with family so that um, we can really get to know them, get to know what, um, you know, what might be causing some sort of dysregulation, what sort of sensory cues um, might be causing that, but also what, you know, what strategies and what things can we learn to help them feel more comfortable, um, help them feel safe and minimise that distress for them. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I mean, I think an, another part of that is, you know, again, appreciating that, you know, um, that we're all, you know, potentially wired differently. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, one of the concerns that I have with a lot of the approaches out there, I mean, if we look at uh, what mm -hmm. happens with things like restraint seclusion, the number of autistic kids that are affected by restraint seclusion through the roof, absolutely through mm -hmm. the roof. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's a situation where very often the approaches that are being taken are um, through a neurotypical lens where, uh, an autistic child is doing something that helps them to regulate, mm -hmm. uh, but it's been decided that that's not something that we want them to do, um, mm -hmm. and uh, hence uh, aren't supporting them. So I think that that idea of really understanding the brain and the stress response, um, mm -hmm. and uh, not trying to, um, you know, control, uh, you know, not trying to control people, but trying to support them is such an important part of this work, I would imagine. Yeah, and um, as my good friend Freanne uh, Wadia tells me, and I think of Freanne actually as the Guy, Guy Stevens of, of New Zealand, um, uh, a great advocate for autistic children, as she tells me, you know, schools just so often traumatise and re-traumatise over and over again neurodivergent children. Um, so the more that our educators can, can have some understanding and actually, as you say, have advocates, autistic advocates, in our ed education system to um, support us all to understand the better. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and Rose, again, I want to thank you for that, that comment. And, and you had another comment here about that connectedness should come from the capacity to do and create uh, and introduce different social opportunities, different ways of communicating, uh, for instance, signing uh, other mm -hmm. um, non-speaking kinds of uh, connections, um, you know, valid as well. Uh, and this is why neurodivergent staff is so important. Uh, fantastic, mm -hmm. uh, you know, point there. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, so much of it is that mind shift uh, change. You know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently that um, people are often very focused on kind of the quick fix and the tools and the uh, strategies when so much of it is about changing. Yeah. Mindset. It's about yeah. moving away from these kind of very, um, compliance and control-based approaches to 
connection and mm. and compassion and uh you know regardless of who you're working with um i think those approaches are important and i think the um the compliance based approaches are always very concerning to me uh, and i think mm. that in particular when we look at um you know neurodivergent individuals um there's a tremendous amount of damage that's being done by those mm. approaches so um I, I know i've gone a little sideways on you but um in thinking about that mind shift piece, um, you mentioned earlier the stories. Um, were there other things that were really helpful to you as you were trying to shift mindsets? Because you know, it's until you can you know get people's heart kind of moving in that direction. Sometimes it's hard to get their mind moving there as well. So, were there other things that you were able to do to bring people along, kind of with a mind shift? Um. I think it was just playing the long game, really. I mean, we would we'd have lots of conversations as a staff. We might, um, you know, we we tried to branch out a bit so that we weren't just a a one man band in terms of just Dr. Bruce Perry. So watch other sort of videos and and stories. Um, yeah, I think it, yeah, I can't think of anything particular other than just sort of persisting, persevering, and playing the long game. And I think then staff started to see the impact that um the shift was having mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I, and i think you know so you're so right when you say it's so much of it happens in the mind we sometimes have people that ask if they can come and visit our school and i say yeah well you're welcome to come and visit but you're not going to actually see a lot you're not going to see sort of gimmicky programs and and things like that yeah, happening right. because so much of the shift is happening happened in the brains and the minds of of myself as leader and of the staff yeah, but but it's really tempting to look for that magic solution, right? It, it's the yeah. Okay, well, one more tool in my toolbox, and and when yeah. I begin to hear toolbox every once in a while, I kind of go, oh, you know, because I, I get it, I get I get it, and and there certainly are you know uh, things out there that are tools and strategies, but yeah, um, there's so much more. I mean, I think mm -hmm. you know, in any situation, um, you can make a tremendous amount of change just by deciding that you're going to do that, that you're that you're going to um, do something different. And, you know, it, it's not even so much. I mean, I'm a big believer. I think, I think a school district that had a lot of restraint seclusion, if they only committed to reducing restraint seclusion and realizing the, the harm that it was doing, would be able to probably cut their numbers in half, if not more, mm. by just making mm -hmm. that commitment and changing that mindset. Um, you know, I know it's, it takes more than that, but it's such a huge piece of any change is, is getting people to, um, you know, see that. Yeah. And that's a great, uh, cutting numbers in half, that's a great segue into my final slide. Um, I almost forgot to put this in. I sort of uh, put together the slide deck and then realised, well, I haven't, really, haven't talked about, well, so what, what happened? Um, so what we saw was we saw a huge reduction in, you know, what we would have called behaviour incidents. Um, so those sort of uh, occasions when children were, were, were so distressed that in the past the teacher might have needed me to either come to the classroom or might have needed somebody bring the child to me so that's gone from something like this is unfortunately we don't have very scientific data collection on this so this is um fairly anecdotal but i would say that probably about 500 incidents wow. a year have gone down to probably less than five and those five would be like the new children the five-year-olds or the children brand new to the school before they've settled down um 
and incidents requiring any physical restraint or the old internal stand down, which is like a child having to spend the day outside my office or with me for the day, or even class evacuations, maybe 100 a year to none now. Wow. Um, we The school is, has for a long time had a, a wonderful history of no stand down suspensions and exclusions. So it's been um, fairly straightforward to continue that. Um, and then the learning. So if we look at some of the children that a few years ago um, had been quite distressed, now that they're they're calm and they're focused, they're engaged, some of their learning has just skyrocketed. So I think of a child um, in this, uh, that you know, a child who might have had a reading age of around about um, five, five and a half, about three years ago, um, a couple of years later is, you know, almost at their chronological age, um, about eight years old or so. So um, I think this is one of our next steps is, it's difficult though because the shift has happened. We want to collect really good, hard and fast data to um, prove to everybody that it's happened. But um, yeah, we didn't have a few years ago. We didn't have very solid um, systems mm -hmm. for for keeping this information. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, and, and those are tremendous outcomes. L let me ask you another thing. Um, so, how how large did you say the school was? Oh, we're only 110 at the moment. 110. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but looking at those numbers, uh, you know, 500 a year um, yeah. for a principal, and, and that almost gets to your your earlier statement: the Calvary is not coming. Uh, you yeah. you equipped the educators that were working with the children to work through issues that would have otherwise been looking for you to resolve. Right. Mm. I mean, you know, is that part of the difference? Is that people felt that they they or had the capability to better handle situations. Uh, that might have otherwise escalated. Uh, because what yeah. we often see um, mm -hmm. in, in incidents that lead to restraint or seclusion is a well-intentioned educator that perhaps is escalating rather than de-escalating a situation by engaging in power struggles, by not understanding the the yeah. science of the brain. Um, yeah. Yes, I mean, that's that's yeah. a really amazing outcome to see that kind of change. Yeah. What about, uh, and, and I don't know... Um, you know, being a smaller school, how relevant this might be, but uh, has it made any difference in uh, turnover in terms of staff turnover, uh, you know, whether it be teachers or aides or others? Uh, you know, one of the, the things that, uh, you know, we seem to see is that when people move to better ways, that increases satisfaction and people are more likely to stay. Have you seen any outcomes along that vein? Yeah. Um, yeah. Staff, staff stability has been really good. Um yeah, especially actually teacher aides. I don't think we've had any that have left in the last four or five years. Um, you know, there's been some natural attrition of teachers moving out of town and things. But, um, yeah, it's a, it is a stable stable staff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah and, 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 I mean, these are... These are tough times across the world, I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in kind of the mm -hmm. post, uh, well, it may not even be appropriate to say post-COVID world. I'm not sure we're really at the post yet. But, you know, as kids went back to school last year here in the U.S. and, and many other places, we saw an increase in stress behaviors, an increase in punitive mm -hmm. discipline, an increase in uh, teachers that were leaving the field, um, you know, and with an outcome that not only reduces referrals to, to administration and reduces and eliminates things like restraint and seclusion and increases teacher satisfaction. It seems like such a, wow, obvious solution. 
uh, but it's it's hard to it's hard to bring about this kind of change. So what you've done, uh, you know, what your team has done is is really really amazing. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about and and obviously I don't expect you to have uh, the the data right off the top of your head, but um, in many parts of the world, and probably all, it's really difficult to get funding to do things like this. Um, so mm. you know. I don't want to say how much of this cost you. That's not really what I'm after, but it's kind mm-hmm. of how much of an investment was this and do they, the powers that be that help to support this work, uh, do they understand the value of what they've gotten in that investment? Yeah, good question. Um, just before I answer that, Guy, are you able to stop sharing my... I will, so I will, and, and we'll, we'll make it you and I. So I'm going to go ahead and remove your screen <laughs> yeah, and no, you are welcome good. to go back to the screen of you and I. Yeah, yeah. No, that's okay. good. How do, how do I do that? Uh, you should be able to go in. So hit the escape button to close yep. your presentation. And you yep. should be able to go back to that tab uh, yep. on your browser. Yes, good. Okay. okay. Yep, perfect. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, initially I, um, when I did the neurosequential education training certificate, I had to self-fund it, pay for it myself. Um, and the, the introductory series was not so expensive. So um, our school we paid for that out of our school budget. Um, and it's been, yeah, that's been one of our um, campaigns is to try and spread awareness um, so that the powers that be, our Ministry of Education, um, actually do um, recognise the importance of this training for teachers. Um, we've been very lucky in that at the beginning of this year, our local office of the Ministry of Education did actually support us to train eight staff from across our region um, to do the trainer certificate and also my they covered my fees for the advanced trainer program um, so I think that's about you know we start in our communities and and then gradually things sort of move out into the wider world so we haven't yet got our national ministry of education really recognizing this work um, there are there's a couple of other people in New Zealand who have done the training and are starting to make an impact in their own area. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a long – it's interesting. I was listening to a, a, a recording, a video that where Bruce Perry was interviewed the other day, and he said that this sort of system, system change can take 17 years on average. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, no, our children don't have that long. But um, – you know, we keep on working away at it. And the, there's a team of neurosequential um, uh, colleagues, so both education and therapeutics, that is just sort of connected in New Zealand. And we've just put on our first national conference um, in last month in Napier. And it was so successful. There's a lot of demand for um, further conferences. So we've got mm-hmm. another one in Christchurch in October and we're planning more for next year as well. So um, hoping to get Dr. Perry out in person. He's been doing mm-hmm. online mm-hmm. Um, presentations. Right, right, right. So. Well, you, you know, if you ever need anybody to come talk about restraint, seclusion, and punitive uh, practices, yeah, that's yeah. what I come to New Zealand. Just put yeah, a plug in there for sure. myself. Sure. <laughs> um, but, but you know, kind of, kind of in that vein of, um, you know, the, the investment, um, you know, and, and I've seen, I, I know that you can find information about the model on the neurosequential website. Uh, yeah. And I'll yeah. put that up. And I know it lists the cost of the training on there as well, yeah. as I recall. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and that's an investment. Um, but, you know, I've got to think that in the long term, when you're 
reducing reducing all these you know punitive disciplines um you know practices that are happening uh think about the amount of time that that's reclaimed for you you know this that mm. 500 instances in a year uh every every other day well you know you were probably having three instances a day that were coming mm. to your office mm. Uh, you know, this allows you to focus more on the things that you need to focus on. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the less staff turnover, the higher satisfaction. I mean, all that is, is a tremendous value, um, mm. and, and moving things in the right direction. So I, I hope that more begin to see that I've got a comment here and I haven't read through the whole comment, but what, what I've been able to read so far, uh, resonate with me. And it's a big one. So, uh, let me share this. This is from Beth and Beth says, the parents tell me their uh, neurodiverse, uh, neurodivergent kids uh, take a while to warm up to a new teacher, but are often surprised that their child bonds with me on first visit. Uh, it's definitely an advantage uh, to be neurodivergent myself. I feel like I can read subtle cues in their facial expressions and offer a different option as soon as I sense boredom or frustration. I also pick up uh, on interest and try to use them and mention that frequently. My empathy and care for them is real. Uh, as I know what my kids and I went mm. through with this. Um, mm. So great, uh, great feedback as well. Kind of mm. uh, piggybacking off of the the comments that Rose made earlier. Um, you know, and again, you know, I think it's, it's connection and it's real connection. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, there was a great book uh, by um, Emma Vanderclift and it was called Talk to Me. Uh, and the subtitle was something along the lines of what educators can learn from hostage negotiators, which sounds like a really strange title, <laughs> but it gets into the importance of making authentic relationships. And authentic relationships, I think, are such a core uh, to this work and, uh, you know, so critical mm -hmm. in supporting kids and, and making progress. Um, okay, well, let me let the audience know here. We've got a few more minutes. So if anybody has any questions or comments, uh, please feel free to put those in the chat. And I may continue to ask a couple until uh, some pop up there. Um, just while you're doing that, guy, can, can I just flip back to what you're saying before sure. about the, the training and the cost? I think, yes, doing the full certificate is expensive, but actually to do the book study on either the boy who was raised as a dog or now, of course, is what happened to you by Dr. Perry and, mm -hmm. and Oprah. Love it. To do the book study is relatively cheap. And actually the introductory series is quite cheap as well. So I think... You know, if, if a school leader or, or a key person in a school was to lead a staff through either or both of those things, I think that could have a profound impact for a relatively small amount of money. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, now uh, remind me, the book study that you did, was that something through the neurosequential model uh, of education? Was that something formal? Well, no, that them? was really before we, well, be, certainly okay. before I did my certificate training. So okay. it was just... Um, the book Something and at the back of the book, yeah. So the okay. back of the book has um, prompts for a book study, has questions in there as well. And then what mm -hmm. happened to you? Um, I think there's at least one uh, book study guide online. And of course, Matthew Portel's Paces Connection at the moment is running um, webinars supporting people to lead book studies in their communities. Do you, do you have your own study guide or anything that you developed in support of the work you were doing there? No, no. I just used, okay. um, so for the boy who was raised as a dog, just used the one that was in the back of the book and the edition that I had. Okay. Um, and for what happened to you, we've used the neurosequential model one, but there are other ones available. Um, I think 
probably through the Paces connection as one of them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and I just put that um, link in the chat for the neurosequential model for education that has some information about the training. Uh, And people were asking about conferences. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Marion asked any conferences and I'm going to guess that's Queensland. Yep, Um, that's right. Yep. Yep. It can be. Yep. We, we're um, there's such a buzz at the moment. We've, we've um, had an amazing lineup of keynote speakers. Um, so yeah, we're planning them around New Zealand at the moment, but yeah, there's no reason why we couldn't take one to Queensland, but I'm mm-hmm. sure there's also other things available in Australia. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, I, I'm just having this random thought and maybe something like this exists out there, but uh, wouldn't it be great to have a, a place where we could find all these conferences across the world uh, that are mm. on similar topics? I mean, you know, I happen to know about a lot of the things that go on here in the U.S., but, um, you know, it's really great to be able to, you know, find a place to find all this information. So mm. if anybody knows of resources like that, feel free to put those in the chat. You might have to um, start one, guy. Yeah, you know, I thought the same. And then I thought, oh, my plate feels so full right now. <laughs> but but e- even a place where people can share about the events that they're doing mm. um, would be really great. Um, you know, so definitely as you have events that are coming up, please share those with us because we'd love to share them. And, you know, we, we definitely mm-hmm. have a very international uh, audience that's always looking for opportunities. Uh, all right. Um, let's see. I'm just looking through the chat here real quick. Um yeah, and just a number of people talking about the resources being great. Um, anything, so again, looking back on this journey and, and you know, when you started, I kind of took you back to the the painful part to say, oh, this is where things were, were really tough. Mm-hmm. But um, was there anything on this journey that surprised you? I mean, was there anything about all of this, um, you know, kind of going back to where you were at that time, uh, anything that surprised you about this journey or any, any, kind of, I'll make this a two-part anything that surprised you and any advice that you might give to a, um, you know, an educator or an administrator uh, at a school uh, that's maybe where you were five years ago. Hmm. So I guess what surprised me is just the amount of, um, you know, the reduction in my own stress and the amount of extra time that I have in the day. And you've already alluded to that. Um, so it's allowed me to take up this position as um, a co-lead of our, our network of schools, which is the Porero Iskahuyako. Um, good attempt at pronunciation earlier, Guy. Um, so and so through my position as a lead in our network of 12 schools and early childhood centres as well, um, I had the opportunity to roll out some of this work across a number of schools, including um, two high schools now. So... Yeah, I think the surprising thing is just how a principal's school day can look so different once this is in place in a school and once my own mindset changes as well, um, my mm-hmm. own stress levels have been impacted. So I've said before, my, my kids cringe when I use the term, but it's like I'm quite evangelical about it. It's almost like finding a new a religion of being born again because it just has made so much difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. That's fantastic. And the second part of the question. Um, yeah, was, kind of thinking about um, advice that you might give somebody. So thinking about a school administrator that might be where you were, you know, uh, five years ago, um, what would you say to them? Or what might you say to an educator that was in a school that was, um, you know, wanting to do, to change things or needing to? I think it's about starting with um, gaining a little bit of knowledge um, so, you know, doing some reading, 
doing some training um, because until you that mindset, until the understandings change, until that mindset changes, then nothing really changes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I think that's so critical. And, um, you know, I, even even if you feel alone and you're trying to bring about mm-hmm. a change, um, you know, if you start out by yourself and you get get somebody else on board and then maybe you do a book study and you get a few more people on board, you know, building momentum, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Um, I, I would imagine you went through some of that where, you know, here, here you started off, you, you spent your own money, you went through some of this training, uh, mm. and then you probably had to try to bring others on board. And I know I've talked to others at your, your uh, school as well that um, are, are very much believers in, in kind of what has happened there and uh, the progress mm. that's been made. So I would imagine that's really uh, a critical piece of it as well. Mm. Well, listen, we are just about at time. I've got a couple quick announcements, but before I get to the announcement, uh, you know, one, I want to thank you for, uh, first of all, uh, joining us and sharing your story. Uh, this is so important. And this is part of uh, work that we do at the Alliance that I think is is one of the most important things we do, which is how do we share with others things that are working? Because if we know, uh, you know, kind of what your journey was and what you've been through and the progress that you made, we know that great things are possible, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also know it's really easy to get stuck where you are. It's really easy to feel like, well, somebody else needs to solve this problem or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we don't have the resources or whatever it might be. Uh, but again, mm-hmm. you know, it's absolutely something that's possible. Um, you know, so I want to thank you for uh, you know, joining us, sharing your story, joining us so early on a Friday morning, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, I, I remember talking to you like, well, we can move the time. No, no, that's fine. And I appreciate your willingness to get up early. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a whole day ahead of you. My day is going to be winding down here soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but appreciate you doing that as well. And uh, appreciate the ongoing work that you're doing, uh, you know, there in New Zealand and in any way that we can collaborate or support the work that you're doing. Uh, any conferences or events that you want to share, you know, please let us know. We're always happy to do that as well. But um, any final words that you have? And, uh, you know, I just want to, again, you know, thank you from uh, the bottom of my heart for for what you've done and the difference you're making for kids. Uh, you know, I realize, you know, when you said that uh, Dr. Perry mentioned 17 years, uh, I believe <laughs> that three to five years, I'm not saying that everything has changed in three to five years, but I'll tell you, I think you can change a lot in three to five mm-hmm. years. Uh, mm-hmm. The first year is really tough. The second year gets a little easier. And I think that within three to five years, you can make significant changes. Uh, and mm-hmm. you're proof of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'd just like to say thanks for the opportunity. Um, and thanks for all the work that you do, Guy. And, um, you know, as I started with storytelling, makes a difference. It, it changes systems. So you do it. You have a great role there in, in connecting people and, and sharing um, other people's stories. So I look forward to hearing many more from many other people telling their stories. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I, I'm used to uh, you very often being on our live events and, you mm-hmm. know, I often say something like, well, we have people from across the world, even New Zealand. And then I see you and I'm like, hey, there's yeah. Linda. Um, yeah. Some other some other kind of closing comments here. Marion said, thank you. So meaning for, uh, meaningful uh, for us all now. Uh, uh, Rose said, lovely. I would imagine uh, this costs a lot as you're uh, also shaking the system uh, and system change is certainly hard. I'm going to give a couple quick announcements. I'll let you hang out here with me for a second. Um, I've got two quick announcements that I wanted to share. Uh, one is, of course, as always, about our 
uh, next event that we have coming up. And uh, I know you uh, joined a lot of these. So, you know, this might be something you're interested in as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we have actually uh, Dr. Kevin N. Huxhorn. Uh, Dr. Huxhorn was instrumental in uh, bringing about change within acute psychiatric facilities where restraint and seclusion uh, many years ago were used heavily. Uh, and in many areas, they still are used heavily. Uh, but Kevin Ann Huxhorn did a lot of work to develop what was called the six core strategies uh, to reduce seclusion and restraint and has some real success stories about the work that um, that she had done in helping to bring about change in uh, terms of restraint and seclusion. Uh, one other quick announcement, and uh, let me see if I can get it here. Um, and this might be of interest to you as well, uh, Linda. We've got a fantastic event that we're planning right now for October. Uh, we're working with the Attachment and Trauma Network uh, on an event, and the event is called Compliance to Compassion, uh, Supporting Students, Teachers, and Staff in Challenging Times. Uh, this is actually going to be a virtual event, uh, and we've got some amazing speakers coming for that, uh, some that you probably are aware of. We've got uh, Alfie Cohen, uh, who does a lot talking about uh, rewards and punishment. Uh, we've got Dr. Stuart Schenker and Susan Hopkins, uh, self-reg, who talk a lot about stress. Um, Emma Vanderclift, who I mentioned earlier, Jim Sporleader, a lot of great people joining us for that uh, really fantastic event. So uh, you can actually now that is open for registration. I will put the uh, link in the chat as well. I also have a better link for that, but I will just put the one I can easily grab right now. Uh, and that kind of wraps up our show for today. Um, and again, want to thank you so much, uh, Linda, uh, for joining us. If you just hang on for one second, we'll end and I'll just thank you offline as well. Uh, mm -hmm. This has really been a great opportunity to hear about the, uh, the work that you're doing. Uh, and I think that every change makes a difference. And uh, you know, although there's a lot of work for us to do across the world, um, you know, you're changing the outcome for kids, you're changing the outcome for teachers, you're changing the outcome for families. So thanks so much for all that you do. Uh, all of you that are watching, um, you know, you are also uh, helping to bring about change. Thanks for being part of this. Please share these, uh, you know, broadcasts with other parents or other educators so that we can spread the word and try to do better things. Thanks so much. Take care.